Hello and welcome to The Corridor here on CFRC 101.9 FM in Kingston, Ontario and podcasting on Spotify and Apple Music. I'm Dinah Jansen. This news program features news from Kingston and area provided by local and regional journalists through the support of the Local Journalism Initiative and the Community Radio Fund of Canada. Welcome and enjoy. Hello and welcome. Our top story today is by CFRC Local Journalism Initiative reporter Chris Laurie on Kingston Museum of Healthcare's recent feature on the History Channel's Our War. Hello, I'm Christina Laurie, Local Journalism Initiative reporter for CFRC 11.9 FM in Kingston, Ontario. Coming up are some of the top news stories in Kingston and the islands. You can listen to CFRC's news programs Today in YGK and Kingston Currents on Mondays, Tuesdays, and Wednesdays at 5pm, or subscribe to our podcasts on Spotify and Apple Music. If you have any Kingston news tips you'd like to share, you can reach me at news at cfrc.ca. The Museum of Healthcare at Kingston has announced that on Saturday, November 11th at 9pm, it will be featured in an episode of the History Channel's original docuseries, Our War. The docuseries team reached out to the museum and the episode was filmed in April of 2022, but the news was kept under wraps until this week. Our War follows individuals as they scour museums and archives to unearth the stories of their ancestors. Each episode highlights ordinary Canadians who made profound contributions during World War I and World War II. The episode filmed at the museum in Kingston features historian nurse Jill Gallant, who aims to uncover the story behind a photograph of her great-great-aunt, Rena McLean, a PEI nurse who was tragically killed just five months before the end of World War I. Featured in the episode are artifacts from the museum's large collection that would have been familiar to Canadian nursing sisters such as Rena McLean. I sat down with Rowena McGowan, curator at the Museum of Healthcare at Kingston, to chat a bit about this upcoming episode. I was wondering if just broadly you could discuss the tie-in here between war history and our medical history here in Canada. Absolutely. Um, So what I always like to say is that medical history is a very specific topic, but also it underpins absolutely everything. Everyone gets sick worries about their health, seeks medical treatment, sometimes has to provide medical treatment for other people, worries about their health. So it really is a part of every aspect of history. And that's true of war history as well. War tends to be a time of major medical innovation, and that's true of the First World War as well. So we are in some ways lucky at the museum because we get to talk about sort of the people who were trying to help and instead of trying to harm. um, But of course, it is a little more complicated than that. But the First World War in particular is a time, again, of medical innovation. It's a time of sort of a lot of people working very hard to try to hurt other people and a lot of people working very hard to counteract that. So you get a lot of progress, you get new inventions. So you get things like gas attacks, And in response, you get the invention of the gas mask. Uh, You have people who are, have their limbs uh, damaged or their faces damaged. And in response, you get huge advances in prosthetics and in surgery. Uh, You have people with PTSD. And in that, you know, in response, you get advances in psychiatry and psychological understandings. So they're very much uh, a part of each other. And we try to talk about that perspective on it. Mm -hmm, Absolutely. Just to get some background on this, how did the museum get involved in this episode? So they actually reached out to us in January of 2022 
So the sort of framing device of the television show, the documentary, is that it focuses on people who are looking into the histories of their ancestors. And this particular, the person that came to visit us, Jill Gallant, I believe is how her last name is pronounced. Um, her uh, ancestor was a nurse, a nursing sister. And since we talk a lot about sort of the history of nursing and we have a lot of objects from that era, they reached out and said, you know, can, do you have artifacts that this nursing sister, Rena McLean, may have used? Can we talk to you? Can we see the artifacts? And it just kind of carried on from there. So they came up for a day for filming. So we did interviews. Uh, we showed them some of the objects in the collection. Uh, I showed some of those objects to Jill and I also just sort of talked to the camera about them and then they interviewed me. I don't know how much of that is actually going to make it into the documentary, but it was several hours full of or several hours of filming. Mm -hmm, yeah, that sounds like an amazing experience. It must have been hard to keep it quiet until now. Eh? <laughs> it was, yeah, it was really, it was really interesting. I've never, I've dealt with film crews before. I've never sort of been in a starring role. Uh, so that was definitely a very interesting experience. And yeah, it's weird to be under an embargo and not being able to talk about both how cool the project is because you want to shout it from the rooftops, but also to kind of talk about all the fun little stuff that you would normally tell your friends about. Like, um, you know, my sort of joke, it's very legitimate, but you know, my joking story is that they got everyone coffee and they wouldn't let me eat my biscotti until I did my interview because they were afraid I'd get crumbs on my front. Um, just fun little things like that. Yeah, I guess we don't have to worry about that with radio, so I don't really think <laughs> Yeah. So where can people tune into this on Saturday? It's coming out on Remembrance Day. Uh, so it will be on the History Channel at 9 p.m. Eastern. Um, and that's the Canadian History Channel. Awesome. I'm looking forward to watching. And where can people in general keep up with the Museum of Healthcare and all of your amazing exhibitions and projects? Absolutely. Um, so you can find us online. So our website is museumofhealthcare.ca. We also have a Twitter account, a Facebook account, Instagram, YouTube. Uh, we also have a blog, uh, museumofhealthcare.blog. And if you watch the documentary and you saw some objects that you thought were interesting. Uh, so many of them are currently on display at the museum. So you can come visit the museum, 32 George Street. Currently we're open Wednesday to Friday, 10 to 4. Uh, those hours will extend uh, over the summer and over the fall. Uh, and also you can see all the objects that we have cataloged online at mhc.andornot.com. Uh, so we definitely try to be as accessible as possible. Thanks so much, Chris. And now over to Mia Leitinen reading a story on Skeleton Park Brewery's recent purchase of two local breweries. In our next story by Owen Fullerton, local journalism initiative reporter for YGK News, a big change in Kingston's craft beer industry became official on Friday, November 10th, but consumers might not even notice a difference. Spearhead Brewing Company will now be owned and operated by the owners of Skeleton Park Brewery under a new parent company called Spearhead Brewing Incorporated, which also owns recently purchased Signal Brewery in Corbyville. While officially Spearhead becomes the property of Skeleton Park CEO Trevor LaHue and his two business partners, it will remain business as usual for the over 10-year-old brewery. LaHue said that he could not share the financial details of the two sales. When it comes to Spearhead, LaHue said from a consumer standpoint, the purchase will look more like a merger than a takeover as Skeleton Park plans to keep Spearhead as the separate, recognizable entity it already is. 
We recognize the power of having these brands be very independent and very separate from one another, LaHoo said. Each one is doing its own thing, and that's a great thing. Skeleton Park has great brand recognition, and Spearhead has a great following as well, he added. There could eventually be some slight tweaks at Spearhead as its new owners get accustomed with the business, but LaHoo says he doesn't expect drastic changes. For now, things will continue without skipping a beat. They've created a pretty decent legacy already, and there's no way that we should be tossing anything over our shoulders, he said. He added that they are going to get in there and make improvements on what they have built already. For Skeleton Park Brewery, which LaHoo says has seen relatively consistent growth after the height of the COVID-19 pandemic, bringing in two additional businesses allows the brewery to stretch their dollar when it comes to the ordering of raw material. The craft beer industry has been and continues to be hit hard by inflation and rising costs, so an opportunity to get a better deal on supplies makes sense. If we combine these two businesses, we can utilize more on things like bulk purchases with our suppliers and be able to get more discounts, LaHoo said. So, we started formulating a plan. If we start implementing these things for the amount of beer that we're producing, we might be able to do it cheaper if we amalgamate these two businesses together, so to speak. LaHoo says operating both breweries can be sustainable, as both approach the business in very different ways. Skeleton Park is more focused on recreating pre-Prohibition-era beer recipes and being local-centric, while Spearhead stays true to their Beer Without Boundaries slogan, standing out through use of some unconventional beer ingredients and promoting inclusivity in the industry. Despite the number of breweries in Kingston and within half an hour of the city, LaHoo says he doesn't feel like craft brewing in Kingston is a crowded industry, as everyone in the business is doing things differently enough to complement one another, not get in each other's way. The only way it ever gets crowded is when the breweries start stepping on each other's toes and start branding themselves too much alike, LaHoo said. He added, We're all doing our thing. We're all coexisting very nicely. In addition to Spearhead, LaHoo and his partners have also purchased Signal Brewery in Corbyville. Signal Brewery has been listed as temporarily closed for months, being put up for sale following the death of founder Richard Cornea in December 2021. The business was the center of some COVID-19-related controversy, but LaHoo said in spite of that, its founder was a visionary who created a strong legacy that they intend to continue. While the business hasn't been operational for a while, the building is fully outfitted to resume brewing at a moment's notice, after a team is put together to run the space. LaHoo says it's a lofty goal, but he hopes to see Signal up and running again in two to three weeks. Jokingly saying that he's absolutely terrified, LaHoo said this entire purchase process has happened rather quickly and is definitely overwhelming, but they're ready to take on the challenge. The way it's all unfolded was really, really unexpected, LaHoo said but we all have this planned out quite diligently. And now over to Katrina Johnson with a story about an accused Napanee arsonist, Jay Bradley. Thank you, Mia. We now turn to a report by Michelle Dory Forrestal, local journalism initiative reporter for thekingstonist.com. The man accused of burning to the ground the building that housed his former business and setting fire to a woman's garage was in court again on November 9th, very briefly. Jay Bradley appeared in court Thursday, November 9th, 2023, via Zoom from Central East Correctional Center in Lindsay, Ontario. He was wearing the orange coveralls customary of inmates in provincial custody and his hair and appearance were tidy. 
Her Worship Justice of the Peace, Ruth E. Campbell, addressed Bradley as the man at Central East, which appeared to confuse Bradley, who said, you mean Lindsay? I'm in Lindsay, and that he had never heard of Central East. Bradley's lawyer, Brian Wilcock, asked to be put in a breakout room with his client. After a few minutes, Wilcock returned to request an adjournment, saying he needed to discuss things at more length with Bradley and that he would arrange times to meet with Bradley over the course of the next week. Justice Campbell adjourned the matter and ordered a return date of Thursday, November 16th, 2023. The whole appearance took less than five minutes. This was Bradley's third appearance in court since his arrest on Friday, November 3rd, 2023, when he was charged with arson in connection with a fire that burned down the York Street Arena in Napanee, where he operated a roller skating rink. He had recently been evicted from the arena following a dispute with the property's management, the Lennox Agricultural Society. Since the time of his eviction, Bradley had a very visible social media presence criticizing the LAS or the Napanee Fair Board as he calls them in many posts and videos on social media complaining about the malicious intentions of the LAS toward him. Many of Bradley's Facebook posts on this subject were deleted from his account in the week leading up to his arrest, a video taken on October 16, 2023, and uploaded to YouTube and Facebook remains. Titled Final Announcement, I Tried My Best to Keep the Magic Alive, the video shows Bradley sitting in a vehicle at night. He details his reasons why he was denied a renewed rental agreement, accuses the fair board of lying to him, and describes them as unethical. I was a threat. They didn't like me on the fair board. They didn't like me being in the building. And because I was challenging them on these things. And that is why they decided to push me out of the building. Bradley theorizes in this video. So I would have to say that, yes, I'm a little bitter about the whole situation. Besides the fire at the LAS-owned arena, Bradley is also accused of threatening conduct towards the president of LAS and burning down her garage and car at a residential property in Stone Mills. At the time of his arrest, the LNA County OPP conducted search warrants at three locations in the city of Kingston. Bradley is charged with two counts of arson with disregard for human life, criminal harassment, threatening conduct, and possession of incendiary material. And now over to Dinah with the latest in the Township of Leeds and Thousand Islands news. Thanks so much, Katrina. We now turn to news stories from Keith Dempsey, local journalism initiative reporter for the Brockville Recorder in Times. In recent news, Canoe Lane is now the official name for a township of Leeds and Thousand Islands Lane that was previously given an offensive name. This was unanimously voted on during the November 6th council meeting in Lansdowne. In 2021, township staff mailed notification to all property owners abutting Squaw Point Lane to inform them that the township was initiating consideration of a name change because the existing lane name is an offensive derogatory term and is not in compliance with the township's civic address bylaw. Staff worked with the property owners and the United Counties of Leeds and Grenville GIS Services Division to advance the matter. Following three circulations to consider lane names, the following names were selected for consideration by the property owners of the lane, Canoe Lane, Fern Lane, and Foxtail Lane. Staff recirculated the proposed names to the property owners and asked that they advise staff of their preferred choice. The proposed new road names were reviewed against the 911 database and with the Master Street Address Guide from Bell 911 for UCLG to ensure there were no duplicate or similar sounding names. 
The counties also reviewed the road names in adjacent municipalities with 911 service area to determine if there were any duplicate or similar sounding road names, which may cause confusion for emergency dispatch and responders. The counties confirmed that Canoe Lane is an acceptable lane name. In other Leeds and Thousand Islands news from Keith Dempsey, members of the Gananoque and Area Food Bank are thanking the community for helping make the recent Community Harvest Food Bank collection a success. Organizers say there were over 40 volunteers in total who went door-to-door in the community looking for collections. Members of the local churches and the Gananoque and Township of Leeds and Thousand Islands Fire Services all gave their support for this initiative. There were several truckloads of food delivered to the food bank in Gandanaque, as well as cash donations. And now over to Ted Evans, local journalism initiative reporter for CJAI-FM, with a story on a Bath veteran who celebrated the release of a new song on Remembrance Day. Hi, I'm Ted Evans, local journalism initiative reporter and news director at CJAI, Amherst Island Radio, 101.3 FM in Stella, Ontario. Coming up are some of the top news stories from Loyalist Township. You can hear Amherst Island Radio's news program, North Shore News, on 101.3 Amherst Island Radio or online at cjai.ca. For showtimes throughout the week, check the schedule on our website at cjai.ca. Thursday, November 9th, local resident veteran and songwriter Steve Guyberson will be performing at Wellborn Commons in Bath to celebrate the release of his new song, Still Over There, for Remembrance Day. The restaurant is currently taking reservations leading up to the event. Guyberson co-wrote the song with New Brunswick singer-songwriter Julian Austin, who released it as a single on November 1st. Still Over There can be heard on YouTube. Guyberson spoke about why Wellborn Commons was a great fit for the event. I, you know, I, I know the owners fairly well, and I, and I knew that they were uh, um, ex-military. So I said, hey, you know what? I want to do some kind of thing to recognize the release of, of this song. Would you guys be interested? And of course, uh, there was just an, an instant uh, connection there. Guyberson went on to explain the idea behind the event. My approach was like, you know what? I, a lot of times, you know, we any an artist will release something or whatever, but you don't get the chance to kind of, know the story um, behind it. So I was like, you know what, let's, that, the people might find that interesting um, to have a local person who's been here in the community, uh, appreciates the community both for uh, service and the music and wants to support local. So let's do something, you know, in a, in a place where folks can uh, come and enjoy an evening out, maybe learn something and do something that uh, honors Remembrance Day. Uh, it just seems, you know, uh, a combination of uh, all good stuff. Guyberson outlined how the event will take place. I will do the songwriter's version. So I will, you know, do it live, uh, verse by verse, and then kind of tease out the story of each verse and, you know, what that means in Canadian history. And then, you know, give people even a chance to you know to ask a veteran questions uh, about it that kind of stuff and then once that's all put to rest um actually play the full uh you know produced radio uh, version the song breaks down three different wars Guyberson explains the story behind the lyrics the song itself breaks it down into three parts so the first uh, verse is about world war uh two uh the second verse is about uh our experiences in the balkans 
in the uh, 90s, and then the third uh, verse is uh, specifically about Afghanistan. So it is basically it's the st uh, it's the story. Um, you know, there's there's kind of like three sub stories to it. Guyberson spoke about his experience in songwriting. I've been dabbling in it, I would say, for about uh, a dozen years, and uh, have gotten serious about it. You know, since the pandemic. So in the last two years gotten serious about it to the sense I put time, effort, energy, and uh, resources into, uh, you know, getting uh, getting my music out in the public and uh, hopefully to convince uh, artists to uh, record it. Guyberson explained the detailed history of the song and how it came together. It really came to fruition. So I picked up the guitar late in life. Uh, I was 30 when I started playing and I, I was deployed to Bosnia in the army. And I uh, took the guitar with me and I was, you know, kind of learning to play it uh, in between patrols and things like that. And uh, Canada, what it does, very similar to uh, what the U.S. does, the USO show tours. But Canada does a similar thing. Uh, it's, we obviously don't have USO in Canada, but uh, same idea. They uh, put uh, uh, entertainment uh, groups together and they go and they visit uh, deployed troops and other nations, that kind of stuff. So in 2003... I was in Bosnia and uh, Julian Austin came uh, as part of the show tour and I met him uh, when he came and played uh, a show there and I was right at that point where um, I was kind of, uh, I'd learned kind of, I'd taken a songbook with me to learning to play guitar. I'd learned all the songs in the songbook and I started dabbling, making stuff up uh, just to uh, uh, past the time, so to speak. Uh, so there was a coincidental meeting. It turns out we were both uh, raised in New Brunswick, about a couple hours apart, but he's a little older than me, so we never crossed paths when we were young. Uh, but uh, we just had an instant connection right away. Um, so later on, after we uh, the deployment was done, uh, Julian was kind of doing tours for the military. He was going base to base, uh, doing shows. So we reconnected in Petawawa, and we were just shooting around this idea uh, about this idea of still over there. Guyberson explained there's deeper meaning to the song as well. Unfortunately, uh, there's so many uh, trends in the world today um, that will be transferable, right? And uh, so, you know, it's not just uh, a historical um, reference. It is a cautionary tale of where the world may be heading, you know, these days. Guyberson noted the amount of support on the local scene. I've been here in the local area. So I've lived here since 2007. I was posted here in the military and then I retired uh, while I was living here and uh, became, uh, you know, I love this community and I love the community because of the, the music connection as well. Um, here in the village of Bath, I, I really like how there's a real trend to support local here. Guyberson explains how this event is a culmination of all the things he enjoys about the community in Bath. I'm just happy that there's there's this happy overlap of something we can do, like you, uh, you know. And there's plenty of veterans in this community for sure. And uh, you know, I want uh, I want you know folks to know that hey, um, this is a place where veterans, artists, and local support and community comes together. And I think that that's, uh, that's what's going to happen on the 9th. All of those things are going to intersect right in the middle of this small village. And man, I, I don't think it gets much better than that. For CJAI and the Local Journalism Initiative, I'm Ted Evans. Thanks so much, Ted. And now over to Alexander Wright of CJPE County FM with a story on tourism opportunities in Picton related to the upcoming spring 2024 solar eclipse.
The first total eclipse of the sun since 1349 will happen this spring, and Prince Edward County is in a unique position. It's in the path of totality, providing some of the best viewing of this event in Ontario and giving the county a unique opportunity for both tourism and education. The county's Municipal Emergency Control Group and community partners recently discussed plans covering traffic control, safety, and communications. The county itself also plans to explore marketing opportunities as the date draws closer. During the April eclipse, the moon will completely block the sun for three minutes and two seconds, starting at 321 in the afternoon. The next eclipse of this magnitude and location will not take place until 2399. For the Local Journalism Initiative, I'm Brenda Little. Thanks so much. And now over to Jeff Gard of CFWN in Coburg with a story on recent achievements at the Pan Am Games for two Coburg athletes. This region was well represented at the Pan Am Games in Santiago, Chile last week. Port Hope native and former Coburg District Collegiate Institute West High School athlete Dominika Jamnicki placed fifth in the women's triathlon on Thursday and earned the bronze medal with Canada's mixed relay team on Saturday. Coburg's Kate Current placed seventh in the women's 1,500-meter run on Friday. She was an athlete at Coburg Collegiate Institute, which is the amalgamated school of the former CDCI West and CDCIE schools. Jemnicki and Current are now on their way home, but Northumberland 89.7 caught up with retired high school track and cross-country coach Don Watson, who followed the results of her former athletes with pride. It's thrilling. I just could explode. I'm so proud of both of them. Dommy's been at it at that level uh, longer than Kate. She's, you know, she she actually finished high school just before Kate came in, so they missed each other. But, um, you know, watching her over the years and just watching her grow, and you just knew it. I mean, that that was going to happen. It was her attitude and her work ethic and, and her talent. Very talented girl. And same thing with Kate, just, you know, five years later. Same thing. Came into high school, worked really hard. Um, was a gymnast, moved into running, started taking it really seriously, you know, ended up at, at Western and, and Domi was at Guelph with, with great, great programs, running programs, as well as academic programs, both very clever girls. And, uh, it's just thrilling to see them continually breaking up into the next level and then the next level and the next level and, and not backing down. So it's, I could just explode. I'm so happy for both of them. Watson worked with Jamnicki even though she was at CDCI East across town and credits CDCI West coaches, John Cordukes and Chris Crooks for their coaching and work with the young athlete at the time as well. A few years later at CCI, Watson said Brad Johnston also played a key role in coaching current. It's a full team effort. You know, we each had our strengths and we each added to, hopefully, well, I think we did, added to to their pursuit of excellence. And, um, and it's just amazing to have been part of that little blip in their athletic career to help them get started. So that's very, very exciting. And it's also really great to see the two of them doing this. And, and they're so inspirational to... I was telling Kate, they're so inspirational to younger athletes, and I don't think they really realize how much influence they have. And younger athletes and us old athletes, you know, just uh, amazing. The Pan Am Games, a multi-sport event featuring nations of the Americas, are held every four years in the year prior to the Summer Olympic Games. The 2024 Olympics will be held next year in Paris.
Reporting for Northumberland 89.7 FM, I'm Jeff Gard. Thanks so much, Jeff. And now it's time for the CFRC weather report brought to you in by Environment Canada. Tonight, we'll have clear skies with a low of 6. On Friday, we'll have cloudy skies with a 70% chance of showers and a high of 12. Friday night, cloudy with a 30% chance of flurries and a low of 0. On Saturday, November 18th, we'll have clearing skies with a high plus 3. Saturday night, cloudy periods with a 30% chance of flurries and a low minus 1. On Sunday, we'll have a mix of sun and cloud with a 40% chance of showers or flurries with a high of eight and the outlook for Sunday night is clear skies with a low minus five. Thanks so much for tuning into The Corridor right here on CFRC 101.9 FM. And don't forget to subscribe to The Corridor on Spotify and iTunes to get your local and regional news on the go. Please help support CFRC continue growing our news desk and make a donation today via CFRC.ca. Thank you so much. We'll see you next time.